I'm James Batchelor. You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm joined this week by Kostya Lobov, who's IP and advertising lawyer at Harbottle & Lewis. Kostya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, I brought you on to talk about IP protection. Now, fair warning to our listeners, this is going to get quite complicated quite fast, right? Yeah, that's a fair to say. We're basically looking at this from the point of view of um, indie studios, developers who caught up in the passion of, of creating their product and, and bringing their own you know, designs and brands to the world, things that they might need to think about in terms of protecting those brands, protecting those, uh, those, those IP. It's obviously in the news quite a lot. Um, yeah. You often see you know, IP infringements and copyright protection and so forth. Um, so uh, yeah, let's get started. I mean, Kostya, like how, how casual a listening experience is this going to be? It's on a scale of one to casual, it's zero. Um, so I would really advise you to sit down and grab a coffee. I've tried to rattle through it in an accessible way, but it's, it can be pretty he- heavy going. What I would say is, is there's broadly two parts to this. One is making sure that your rights are protected, which I deal with first. And the other half of it is really making sure you don't infringe the rights of others, which is probably the more relevant consideration if you're at the early stages of setting up your company, etc. So, um, yeah, let's get going. We, we almost need a kind of a too long, didn't read bit at the start and then let people listen in detail. Yeah. But, but how do you sum that up? I don't know. Too long, didn't read uh, or listen is, as I say, there's two parts of it. One is protecting your own rights. One is infringing the rights of others or trying to avoid that. When you're protecting your own rights, set yourself a budget prioritize and don't stress too much about getting it all done at once right at the beginning it'll come in due course when thinking about not infringing the rights of others definitely do think about that at an early stage do some clearance searches make sure you're not going to have to totally rebrand or make drastic changes to what you're doing later on brilliant okay here we go let's get into the nitty-gritty proper detail Let's have a go. <laughs> what counts as IP? What actually needs protecting? Well, James, how long have you got? I mean, <laughs> there's uh, we've quite got about a, half an hour. Quite, but... <laughs> quite a few things to consider. I mean, okay, I'm going to do a very quick overview, sort of assuming zero knowledge whatsoever. Uh, I'll deal with the ones that um, studios, particularly newer studios and indies, probably don't need to worry too much about in the early stages, so we can just get them out of the way quickly. So, patterns. Let's just get this clear once and for all. You can't patent a word, you can't patent a picture. Patents are strictly for technical inventions that can be put into some sort of industrial application. So it's for techie stuff. It's to an extent you can patent software, uh, but it's mostly things which have a technical practical effect, which is completely new, it's never been done before, and you came up with it. And the, the deal is that it costs quite a lot of money up front. You could spend anything sort of five to ten grand getting your first application in and then all the way up to sort of a hundred thousand by the time you actually get the pattern. So very, very expensive, very front-loaded. But in exchange for that, the government effectively gives you a monopoly for a very long period in which nobody else is allowed to make that invention if it's a product or to work that invention if it's some kind of process. Mm. So it's expensive, but you can sort of see how the absolute giants in IP, so like the medical companies, etc., can make huge amounts of money from this. Not so relevant for games. So 
unless you've got something absolutely earth-shattering. Where this could apply, for example, is uh, middleware providers, people like that, people who create graphics engines and okay, yeah. stuff like that. You can see how they, in fact, I'm sure NVIDIA has a whole bunch of patterns that they rely on, but that's not really what we're aiming for today. So that's patterns. Uh, next we have designs. So designs can be registered or unregistered. Uh, and just to be clear, everything I'm talking about today, obviously I'm an English lawyer, so I'm talking from the perspective of English and European law. I mean, generally speaking, in most well-established um, jurisdictions, things will be fairly similar, but just mm. sort of bear that in mind. So around here in Europe, we have registered designs and we have unregistered designs. Unregistered are great because you don't have to register them. You don't have to pay anything. They just pop up automatically as soon as you've created something which qualifies for protection. And what qualifies is broadly visual stuff. So uh, the external visible design elements of, uh, could be a product, could be like a physical thing, could be like a, a controller if you, if you make hardware or peripherals, or it could be uh, the actual design of an in-game asset. So it could be the shape of a car in a racing game, it could be you know, character models, it could be to an extent textures as well. Yeah. Uh, we're getting to the details because there's actually four types of design, right? And this is like way too, way too complicated to go into today. But what you need to know is there's some that are unregistered, which you get automatically, mm. including a European one, which lasts for three years from the moment you've, you've created the thing. And there are registered ones, which you apply to register. It's not particularly scary or difficult to do. You pay a few hundred euros if you want to do it at the European level to, to get it on there. And then you have protection for a longer period. But obviously, you, you will generally only go to that expense, A, probably once you're well established, you've got a good game that's out there and it's commercially successful, it's doing quite well. Uh, I mean, for example, I know, I know that uh, companies like um, Wargaming will register a lot of their in-game assets as, as registered designs because obviously they're already doing well and that's uh, a concern for them. They want to protect that sort of thing because they suffer from cloning just like everybody else does, so they don't want their game assets being cloned. So um, that's designs. The ones which are likely to be more relevant uh, are trademarks and copyright, and I'll also touch on confidentiality briefly, which isn't strictly speaking an IP right, but it's also quite an important thing to consider. So trademarks are basically things that tell consumers where something commercially originated from. So it could be words, logos, slogans, those are the obvious ones, but it could also be sounds, it could even be smells, it could be all sorts of stuff. It could be anything which could be like the shape of packaging, stuff like that. Right. Um, so trademarks can be registered or unregistered as well. I'm seeing a pattern here. Yes. Um, unregistered trademarks what we call them in the UK is it's covered by the law of passing off. So what, what we say is not you have an unregistered trademark, but you've been using a particular mark, say it's the name of your studio, for a number of years out there. It's, it's in advertising, uh, it's on uh, packaging of games that are in the shops, it's out there and people know about it. And because of that, you've generated what lawyers call goodwill. And that just means the sort of, it's like a sticky, attractive force that means that you've you generated value in your brand effectively. Mm. And it's that value which, under the law of passing off, you're allowed to protect. If somebody then comes along and tries to pass off their products or their games or their packaging or any of those elements, uh, sorry, uh, as yours, if you see what I mean. So, right. so you don't have a registered trademark, but somebody comes along and creates, practical example, uh, 
a game which is a, a clone or an almost clone, one of those which is very close but annoyingly yeah. doesn't quite meet the test for, for copyright infringement, which we'll come on to, passing off might be an option because you'll say, well, okay, fine. Strictly speaking, you haven't copied a substantial part of any of my artistic works or any of the videos or any of the music, but just look at it as a whole. Look at look at the name. Look at you've just you've just added a hyphen and taken off the s and you know added an extra descriptive word at the end. But the overall image of it, the overall impression to the consumer is that they're going to think this is like one of my games, or maybe it's you know the next one in a series. They're going to think that it's somehow commercially, economically connected to me, like I've licensed you to do this. Mm. In that sort of scenario, that's where passing off can kick in and where you can do something about it. So useful to bear in mind, not really a lot you need to do to make sure you can rely on it, other than, I suppose, if needed to, just have something you can get close to hand to show that you've been using the mark in the market. So your name, whatever it is you want to rely on, if you're able to get your hands on, I don't know, uh, like keep hold of your press releases, keep hold of newspaper coverages, you know, if, if games industry runs a story on you, just make sure you save that, put it in a folder somewhere, you never know, I mean, just for PR-wise, generally that's useful, but also for, for this ability to rely on passing off, that's also a very useful thing, so. Yeah, like a little scrapbook of evidence then, basically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. because, I mean, I, I, look, I totally get it that this isn't going to be number one on anybody's list of priorities, but if it's something that, if even one person remembers to do that from this podcast, I will feel like I have helped. <laughs> um, so that's something to consider. And then trademarks are basically the registered version of what I've just described. So it's, uh, there is a bit of cost, uh, not a lot, but there's a little bit of cost in actually getting the registration. You basically file an application ranging from cost from a few hundred quid to a lot more depending on how many classes you want to cover um, and if you're successful you get a registered trademark which is is an intangible asset it's a thing that you own or your company owns uh, which can be easily licensed to people it's more easy to enforce against other people uh, there's less of this scrabbling around trying to find evidence that you've acquired goodwill in something you don't need that because you just say look I've got a registration I don't need to worry about any of that. Here's the date on which it was registered. It predates your use, and you're using an identical mark for identical goods, or you're using it for similar goods, but it's in a confusing manner. So I'm allowed to sue you, or at least threaten to sue you for <laughs> trademark infringement. Um, so it's a useful thing to have. Again, it's it's something that needs to be prioritized. And by that I mean people don't get massive trademark portfolios overnight. They're built up over years and years and years of filing, letting certain things drop, filing new things, etc. That's how you end up with portfolios of 10, 20,000 trademarks for the yeah. likes of Unilever, okay? So I wouldn't worry too much at the beginning about just trademarking everything. There's really no need to do that. Yeah. I think you really need to identify what are the core brands whether they be names or logos or something else, which I am going to use consistently. Mm. So, I mean, the name of your studio would be an obvious place to start because that's going to be there release after release after release. You're going to be using it. It's going to be out in the marketplace. That's going to be worth protecting. So that would be a good place to start. In terms of logos versus just word marks, I think just going for a word mark is, is a good place to start because it gives you quite a broad 
scope of protection. Yeah. So if, if you've registered uh, the name games industry and somebody uses something very similar or identical, but they've put it in a different font and on a different background, that doesn't really matter. If you've got the word only registration, it will cover that. And there'll yeah. be at least an argument to say that's identical, even though they've changed the font a little bit. So, so why? I mean, all of this sounds a lot of work, and, uh, particularly, particularly <laughs> for like Indies who are just like, I just want to make this game. Yeah. Why is this stuff important to protect? So like, I mean, I, I liken it to some authors, obviously, do get very kind of paranoid. As in, I'm, I'm talking independent self-published authors get very kind of paranoid about um, trademark and, and infringement in terms of worrying about people stealing their ideas. And there is there's this thing that I've heard that that they are they send themselves their own manuscript in a, oh, yeah. a time stamped envelope and they do not open it so yeah. on, on the off chance that someone rewrites their novel almost word for word now I mean is does that happen in games to people I mean we've seen obviously there's clones and stuff but yeah I mean how how at risk are studios of having their game copied is basically what I'm going with that yeah. I mean, I think you only need to look at the App Store or any of the App Stores to see the answer to that. I yeah. think it ha- in mobile particularly it happens quite a lot because it's it's quite easy to make a clone. It's quite, I think, I mean, I'm not a programmer, I don't know, but I mean, from what I understand, if that's what you're doing and that's your business model, you only really need the clone to be up there for a few weeks to make significant amounts of money and then you move on to something else. Mm. And that that is how some people will operate. So... I don't want to overstate the risks, but you know, there are risks. Um, and I've stupidly started with the IP rights that you don't need to know about. So what <laughs> I was going to come on to is actually a copyright, which is your point about the envelope and, and yeah. the writer. So the whole idea behind that is that, uh, as I'm sure you know, like the envelope gets stabbed, right? So there's a date on the envelope and it shows when you sent it to yourself. Yeah. And the point there is if somebody else comes along, you can say, well, look, I wrote this at least as early as this because, look, I have a sealed envelope Mm. which says I sent it to myself. So it must have already existed at that stage. It's quite an old-fashioned thing to do, and, you know, I'm sure there's more modern ways of doing it these days. But it's actually, the point remains valid. So just being able to show when the thing that you created was created is quite a useful thing to do. But, I mean, in practice, if you have a... A saved PDF or whatever the file might be. I mean, usually there's metadata these days anyway, and all yeah. the electronic stuff, so you can rely on that. Uh, in terms of um, how complicated it is, and yeah, I mean, I, I totally accept that IP is not going to be at the forefront of everybody's ideas. I guess, I guess, all I'm trying to convey is, you know, give some thought to it, and then if you dismiss it because you decide actually, do you know what? I've got more important things to do. I've got to sort my funding out. I've got to work out who I'm going to be working with, I've got to find a publisher or work out how I'm going to self-publish this. I totally get that, and IP will fall to the back of the queue. Uh, but it's just getting into good habits which will help studios out later on. I think that's, that's all this is. And in terms of copyright, I think some useful questions to ask yourself is who owns what and how was it made? So, you know, studios and developers exist in all sorts of different structures so they might be working in a partnership if it's just a few people or they might have a little limited company and they're all directors and shareholders or they might be employees of you know a bigger company uh, and there are different consequences for 
who actually owns the copyright in whatever it is that you've made, so say a bit of code that you've written, depending on what the setup is. So if you're an employee, for example, generally speaking, if you make something in the course of your employment, it will automatically belong to your employer. Mm. And some people can forget that sometimes. And that applies if you're an employee of your own company, in inverted commas. So if you if it's a small company, it's just you and a bunch of friends. If you are employees or you're deemed to be employees, then there'd be an argument that maybe not you. You might think you personally own the thing that you just wrote, but actually it might be the company in which you are just one of five shareholders yeah. and who owns you, the thing that you just wrote. And that could lead to disputes and arguments later on yeah. you know, if that thing then becomes very successful. So it's, it's worth talking about that stuff, especially if you're working collaboratively with other people. It's really worth... It's awkward, like I totally get it, but <laughs> it's worth raising those issues and working out who actually owns this stuff. And I, I get people come in fairly regularly and, um, you know, it's all very friendly at the outset. And I don't want to say it doesn't end up being friendly later on, but, the, you know, if you don't discuss these things early on, then it can lead to friction later on. And that's where things like, for example, shareholder agreements between shareholders in a new company come in very useful. Or just, you know, just exchanges of letters or emails or something to record what you've agreed. How is this going to be owned? Mm. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose the other thing to mention is confidentiality. So this isn't, strictly speaking, an IP right, but it's, it's a useful sort of glue that fills the cracks between all the other things I've mentioned. So when none of the others apply, this is usually what happens, is when you can't rely on any of the others, confidentiality might be there as something you potentially could rely on. Then the idea is if a piece of information, which could be pretty much anything, is confidential, then in theory, and, and it's, if it's confidential to you, then in theory you can prevent other people from using it uh, in a way which isn't permitted. So how do you make something confidential? Well. Writing confidential on it is always a good start. I mean, I would always just say, unless it's clearly not the case, generally putting confidential, just that word, on, on materials that you send out or generate internally or which you might circulate or which you might use for pitches, for example, things like that, is always a good idea because it just gives you something to rely on if, if, if something goes wrong. Um, it won't necessarily mean that it is confidential because if you call something confidential and then actually, actually you just go and publish it publicly on the internet that actually will lose its quality of confidentiality uh, but it gives you something to rely on so um, that's a useful one to bear in mind but particularly with pitches because again I see this a lot where people will put in quite a lot of work to create a sort of early stage prototype or design or just something which they're hoping that the person they're going to pitch it to is going to embrace wholeheartedly and they're going to be in business together and then inevitably it doesn't happen and they go off somewhere else and five six months later you realize they've made something which is suspiciously very similar to the thing you pitched to them six months ago and then you go hang on that's not fair but what can you do about it and that's where you know i would then go back and look at what was actually agreed, inevitably there isn't a written NDA. And by the way, that would be the best thing to do is to have a written NDA, yeah. but I'm just accepting the reality that if you're pitching to somebody, there's no way they're gonna sign your NDA. Yeah. Um, if anything, they might make you sign <laughs> an NDA, which will be very uh, pro that. But it's, that's when looking at the materials which you sent over, I mean, 
just even basic stuff, like if you emailed them over, just putting the word confidential in the subject line, it has some value because it gives you something to then rely on and say, well, you know, we may not have had an agreement expressly, but as you can see, all of our email correspondence was marked confidential. The actual PDF was watermarked and password protected and, you know, it said confidential on that as well. It just, they're all very useful things which might not seem like a big deal when you're actually making it, but I promise you, if, if it comes to an argument, these are all useful things to hang your hat on later on. So when should indies and, and developers start thinking about these things? Because obviously, like, yeah, like yeah. when they first, particularly when they first band together a company and they first form and they first start on the project, they're excited to get going and get started and get all these yeah. designs down. It's probably going to you know, take away from the momentum if every time they come up with a really cool idea or a really cool character design, they're having to think, right, how do we protect it? No, absolutely. <laughs> no. I, okay. I think early on, as I say, IP takes a backseat. I think it takes a backseat to things like sort of getting the corporate structure in place, getting your funding in place, getting your premises sorted out, if you're going to employ people, getting their employment agreement, you know, all of that stuff that you need, the actual bones and the structure of the business. In my experience, that always takes a priority. And that's how it should be, really. Mm. I think at that very early stage, the only thing I'd really think about is possibly applying for a trademark. If, if, if you're at that stage of incorporating a new company and, and you think it's, you know, that's the name you're going to be using, that's worth considering. Only because it's relatively easy, and if it's just one trademark and one class, as I say, it's a, it's a few hundred quid. It's not going to cost you the heaven and the earth. Mm. So it's a free and easy thing to do. Not free, cheap and easy thing to do. Um, in terms of when everything else comes in, as I say, a lot of these things, you know, like m marking things confidential, it doesn't really require any time or money. It's just a case of have I remembered to do it or not. So mm. it's not a case of, you know, I've made something and now how do I go about protecting it? It's just a good habit that, I mean, you'll either remember it or you won't, right? So you'll either remember to do it, in which case great, or you won't, in which case, well, you know, maybe, maybe you will next time. But, yeah. you know, that's... That's all it is, really. And then I think, in terms of the copyright and you know the actual ownership of the game, basically the thing that you're going to be coding, I think that probably that's probably sort of step two or three, isn't it? So once you've set up the structure of the business, you've got your offices, you've people have got their laptops, and they're going to sit there and go, right, let's do this thing, and then you start doing it. I think that would be a good point to at least ask yourself, well, you know, are we clear on who's actually going to own this. Mm. And as I say, part of that might be covered in the shareholders agreement. If, if, if all the people are employees and so the work automatically belongs to the company, then it's agreed among the shareholders how the ownership of the company is split. So in, in a way, you might not need a separate agreement for that. Yeah. So that probably comes in later. And as I say, designs and patterns are something that to be considered much later on, if at all, because they might just not be relevant to what it is that you're doing. The only thing I would say is that obviously IP is sort of a, it's a shield and a sword. Is that the right analogy? I don't know. But yeah. part of it's how do I protect my stuff? And actually quite a big part of it, especially at the beginning, is how do I not infringe the stuff of other people? Of course. Because, and that's usually the more common query that I get at the early stages because, you know, you're picking a name. Have you checked if other people are using that name? Because all of the things I just explained, obviously, that applies to everyone. So if somebody mm. has a registered trademark for a similar or an identical name, 
or if they don't but they've been using it for a long period of time and they've acquired that goodwill I talked about you know these are all things they could potentially use against you so it's worth uh, doing what we call uh, clearance searches so th these can range from doing something you know formal where you instruct the third party to actually do proper searches or you know just go online and have a look just do some searches on your favourite search engine I, I, I assume this is going to be a lot a lot more complicated. Well, not more complicated, but it, it requires a little bit more effort than just typing into Google your chosen. Do you know what? Room. That's a good start. I think just googling something is honestly, because if you think about it, if that will pick up the obvious stuff. Because if yeah. somebody's been using a name for a long time, they'll probably have a really well-established website which will have a high SEO ranking. It'll probably come up on the first page of results yeah. wherever you are. So, actually, Google should pick it up. And barring people who are just sort of hermits that have been using the name without a website or anything for 30 years that you know it helps and you'd be amazed you know stuff like that that can be very useful and doing that at a very early stage that that's where the real value is you know doing that at an early stage because you save yourself so much money and hassle <laughs> later on like you know i've had situations where people didn't do that and then they start using a name you know that the, they start doing well and then literally you know a year into their development cycle it turns out that there's another studio or another game or another... Because it doesn't even have to be a game studio. It could just be another brand owner in a slightly different field. Yeah. That have been using the name for a while. Oh, and by the way, there's a registered trademark. And now there's a risk you're going to have to rebrand everything. And I'm guessing, oh, I didn't know about that. Honest is not really a defense. No, no usually not. <laughs> <laughs> is it worth actually but on that? Also searching Facebook and Twitter. I, I'm saying this because you say, like, okay, search... Search Google or other search engines are available. Yeah. Um, but search a, you know, search the internet for your chosen company. I found as a journalist sometimes, particularly when you're looking for really, really, really small, and new and indie companies. Yeah. They don't show up on Google, Yahoo, wherever, because they haven't got a website. They haven't got. Um, yeah. But they have got a Twitter account. They have got a Facebook account. Because the amount of times I was like, I can't, I can't find any evidence that this company exists apart from the fact they have a mm. page on Facebook. Yeah, and this is particularly like kind of, um, like I say, very, very small indies, and particularly from kind of Europe and like far flung nations. Like, yeah, like, yeah, I want yeah. Well, the very, very small indies, again, it works both ways. So they are less likely to have registered trademarks. That's the sad truth of it, you know, and, and they're less likely to have been using it for a long period of time. So the bigger, more prominent ones are probably the ones you need to worry about yeah. more. But I totally agree with you. And there's, a, there's no sort of real magic to it. If you're working on a budget or you just want to do it yourself, everything you've just said, those are all valid things to do. So searching Twitter, Facebook, all the social media, it's all useful stuff. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. And then, as I say, if you want to, the only other thing I'd add to that is it is worth checking the relevant trademark registries. Now, just to be even more annoying, trademarks are on a national basis. So <laughs> each country has their own trademark system. Yeah. Uh, the exceptions to that, and there's a couple, but the main one is in Europe, we have this Europe-wide trademark system, which exists in addition to all the national ones. So it's quite possible to have exactly the same trademark registered as an EU and as a UK trademark at right. the same time. So it's just sort of a layer above that. Um, Google generally won't pick those up. So if something's registered, but say there isn't a website for it, that could still be a big problem, but Google won't pick that up. And um, 
I mean, as I say, each country has their own registry. You can probably try and find your way to that. You could speak to a friendly lawyer who might not even charge you, possibly, for doing a, <laughs> doing a quick check. I mean, that's always worth doing. Uh, or, you know, if you are serious about this and you've, you've got some, you know, you might have had a Kickstarter or something, you might have had some funding behind you. If you want to do it a little bit more thoroughly, again, for the sake of a few hundred euros, I can't remember what the exact charges are, there are more structured searches that you can do. And that, this is a third party. In fact, it's Thomson Reuters that offers this service. It's, uh, it's a third-party searching service where they will be very thorough. They will search national... Well, they'll search whatever you tell them to search, but they can search national trademark registries, the European registry. They can search uh, domain names and you know things that aren't necessarily registered but are in use, which could also be an obstacle. Uh, all, all of that can be done. So, again, just tailor it to your budget. Work mm-hmm. out what you're prepared to set aside for getting your IP house in order and then speak to somebody about what the best way of allocating that is. In fact, that's probably the best way of approaching it is not worrying about what, what are all the things I need to get is, at least as far as trademarks are concerned, is just setting yourself a budget and then just stick to it because there's almost certainly something you can do for mm-hmm. almost any budget. So. So what would you say are like the kind of the biggest misconceptions or misunderstandings that people have about IP and, and protection? Like I mean, like what what are the the kind of the the uh, illusions that you, you've had to shatter in the past? Yeah, I think generally IP has a little bit of a bad rep. Uh, because if you think about it, and this might get a little philosophical here for a second, <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of the opposite of free speech. And free speech is sexy and cool. Everybody likes free speech. And I, I, by the way, me too. I think that's a good <laughs> idea. But IP is kind of diametrically opposed to that. So you're, you're giving people rights to prevent other people from saying or doing certain things. Mm. The, the justification for that is that, well, it adds value to the economy. It, in theory, promotes creativity because, you know, if people can't feel like their creations are protected, what, what's the point of creating stuff? Somebody's just going to nick it and copy it and I can't read the success of it. So that's the idea behind IP. But there's always that friction because the moment you give people rights that can be enforced uh, in that way, it becomes open to abuse. And I think, uh, as we were talking about earlier, I think there is, there is press coverage on those forms of abuse, which totally exists, but I think sometimes people think that that's all IP is. It's just um, a thing used by super evil megacorps to, to really crack down on the little guy. And and actually, what I would say to that is, you know, it can be a huge benefit to the little guy as well, because it's not just about avoiding infringing other people's uh, rights, but once the little guy gets some success, mm. I promise you, once the little guy's stuff starts being copied and stolen on the internet, he will want to know about IP. And suddenly yeah. free speech will take a little bit more of a backseat <laughs> to the argument. Because that's the thing. Nobody is really that keen on IP until their stuff starts getting copied and, and stolen. And that's where it becomes more important. That's like quite a cynical thing to say. The example that springs to mind is like, I do wonder if um, Dominic Lyon ever had Flappy Bird trademarked or copied or, or copyrighted or, or just protected in some way yeah. because there are so damn many clones of that yeah and, and like yeah, like I remember I remember when he pulled that from the store I think it was something stupid like 60 clones a day wow. were yeah. being put up on app stores and then when he announced his next game Swing Copters 
Mm. And all he showed was like a short clip. And maybe this <laughs> speaks to how simple this gameplay is, but like the week before Swing Copters came out, because he announced the release date, yeah. the stores were full of Swingy Copter, Copter Swing, like, you know, all these different things. And you have to wonder, like, was there nothing he could have done that could have prevented all that from... Yeah, I mean, probably. But the other thing is, so he made quite a lot of money from Flappy Bird, I think, didn't he? I can't remember what the status, but it was only up for a few months or something. Yeah. But it was extremely successful and then obviously no, the yeah. clones just sort of swamped it and, and into oblivion um, the, so the thing with IP rights is it's all very well and good having them but once you have them if you're on the enforcing side I mean, you're the rights owner for them to actually bring you value I mean they have some value in just as an attractive thing to have which is attractive to investors and you know if you go on Dragon's Den the first thing they ask you is do you have a patent for this? Have you registered a trademark? Yeah. Who owns the copyright? So they're attractive in that sort of sense, but their real purpose is, as I say, stopping bad people from doing bad things. But to do that, obviously, to an extent, you have to spend time and money because, uh, yes, you can rely on rights to, for example, file takedown notices with app stores if something uh, infringes your copyright or your trademark or some other right. That's quite a good way of doing it. Uh, it works to an extent, but obviously if there's a lot of clones out there, that's a lot of just manpower that you yeah. need to, to, to sit there and submit these things. And by the way, they don't always work because sometimes iTunes will come back to you and say, well, actually, we don't quite agree with your reasoning here. We, we think this is fair use. That free speech argument, <laughs> you know, that and comes up very questionable games on the app still. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean... The bottom line is like a, the nuclear option is you sue somebody, right? So that's, you know, you, you pick the territory where you're going to sue them. And that has to be generally where they are based and where you have rights. And then you would issue proceedings against them. But that is so, so rare. I mean, it, mm. you, you pretty much hear about all of the cases where somebody sued somebody. They, they all make the news because the vast majority, I would say 99.9% of all IP related disputes are either basically these semi-automated takedown notices which just get submitted by people or it's people sending letters and emails to each other saying you don't want us to sue you so please do this yeah and then it just gets resolved either because the name gets changed or the logo gets changed and that that is how the vast majority of these disputes happen it all happens behind the scenes so in the case of the flappy bird chat I mean uh, I don't know realistically what he could have done about that. When you're faced with that level of cloning in such a short space of time, yeah. it's quite an extreme example, isn't it? I, mean, there's, I think as well, like, okay, so, so to take a slightly different tack, we're obviously using the Flappy Bird example, and that was exact copies of his game. Yeah. So if he had the manpower to, to protect that, there's just no question he, he would hopefully get that protected because... Yeah, if it was exactly the same code, obviously that's yeah. a slam dunk. It's literally just same code, almost the same yeah, asset. Yeah. It's pretty much the same name. What happened? And I've obviously been talking with you this kind of, you know, off air. Um, when it comes to enforcing a, a, a trademark or a copyright or, or some sort of registered design that is not similar. So the example I, I was talking to you about was Prey. Zenimax, oh, yes. um, obviously issued a, a notice to an indie who was making a game called Prey for the Gods. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with Prey, not in the same genre, 
not even the same gameplay mechanics. Like like I said, there's there was no similarity there at all. Except one game is called Prey, and the other game is called Prey for the yeah. God. So there's three extra words there. Like, but is that enough to warrant? Like, I mean, did does indies have to worry about protecting against like any possible word that they use? I mean, it's it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, um, I think with trademarks in particular. I totally get why that looks bad when you say it like that. <laughs> I totally understand it because the games are totally different and you'd wonder, well, what, what's the problem here? The problem is, as far as trademarks are concerned, this is why it's important to search for registered trademarks before you go, you dive in, you know, uh, head first and, and pick a name. Because it's all about what the trademark is registered for. So if you register a trademark, you don't get a monopoly for that word, let's say, over yeah. absolutely everything. And in fact, there's quite strict restrictions about what you can and can't register it for. I can't register the word apple for apples or fruit, <laughs> but I can register it for laptops. And actually, that's quite a distinctive mark and it, yeah. it's used. So there are specific categories that you, you, you pick and which you're given rights in those categories. Now, in this case, I think the registration was for something like computer software. Mm-hmm. And then that's the extent to which the analysis goes. So that's the, in this case, I think it was, a, it was an opposition and the, the USPTO would have been looking at that. They will look at the specification of the mark, which is computer software. They will look at the mark itself, which is prey. And then they will look at the thing that was objected to. I think in this case, uh, the, the makers behind Pray for Gods, I think they applied to register their trademark. Right. And that's what the issue was. So I don't think, although I don't know the background, I don't think this was a kind of suing scenario. I think it was a kind of... No, it was... You've applied to register this. We already have this registration, so... The studio said, like, we, we've changed this to avoid being sued. Right. Like, okay. so, so, so it wasn't, it wasn't like Zenimax was banging down their door. Right, right. It was more just, it had become an issue. Yeah. And that's why they needed to change. And so then if you look up that mark, and I, I had a quick look at this, and from memory, the specification of the Pray for the Gods mark was in fact something like computer software. Right. And so it, it, it then is irrelevant that the games are completely different because you look at the comparison of the marks, Pray versus Pray for the Gods, you mm. look at the specifications, computer software, computer software, and it's a match. It's, it's yeah. a match. It, the services are identical, or the goods are identical, and the marks are not identical, but there's obviously enough similarity for, for at least an arguable case there. Yeah. And so, and obviously that one was resolved informally. I don't think there was any sort of uh, actual action there. I think they, they changed the name and they proceeded on that basis. But that, again, that's quite a routine thing to do. And just, just to sort of just play that through for a second. Say you're a brand owner and you, you, you have a registration and it's been a successful line of uh, games or products or whatever it may be for you so you, you you're protective over it you know you want to you want to make sure that it continues to be successful if you don't oppose other people registering marks that are similar to yours and for which there is a genuine sort of legal argument that you, that you can oppose them what could happen over time is that that little niche you've carved out which identifies your product or your service will just lose its distinctiveness and this is known as dilution in, in lawyer speak mm. where more and more marks start to be registered which are either identical or sort of close and similar and you can see how after a while um, it, it ceases to be distinctive or it becomes almost in some cases it can become almost a generic term so there's there's a whole graveyard of trademarks that used to be 
trademarks and now are just things. So Hoover, for example. Yeah. You know, although I think technically they're still clinging onto that. So sorry, Hoover, if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this. But there's you know things like Escalator, I believe, was originally a registered trademark, but just through use and through just getting swamped by descriptive uses by other people, it ceased mm. to have that distinctive quality. So that's why. Hopefully that gives you a little insight into why sort of the bigger rights holders do it. It's because they don't want that to happen. They are they they want to sort of carve out the little island in the trademark world which they've planted their flag on, and uh, and that's what they're doing. Um, can't remember what the question was. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, we are uh, slightly out of time anyway. So um, sure. I I, th- I think or I hope um, the developers may have learned something from this. Um, it might require repeated listening for some people. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a it's, half an hour topic, I totally get that. No, um, I mean, where can people go to learn more? I mean, is there a resource or, or a place to, to just kind of where it breaks it down? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of good blogs and, and, you know, things just out there as a sort of, I think Yuki, in fact, the UK Interactive Entertainment Industry Body, uh, they have a very good, uh, and it's very good because I drafted it, <laughs> um, primer to IP rights. It's somewhere, I can't remember, if you navigate to it through the menu, you should be able to find it. But it's a sort of introduction of what a, what does each IP right do and what sort of stuff do I need to think about it. So I, I would definitely give a plug to that. It's on the Yuki website. Go and have a look at that. It basically summarizes in a much slower and calmer way everything that I've just said in the last half an hour. So that's quite a good resource. Oh, you know, we occasionally, in fact, every year we host a seminar where indies, developers, publishers, whoever want to come along and listen to current topics in the games industry. So I would recommend going to one of those if you can. It's mm. it's free. There's no sort of cost or anything. And obviously we, we stick around for beers afterwards. So if you want to come have a chat, then feel free. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much for your time thank today. You. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, we are going to be back with another episode. I believe we've got BAFTA uh, coming on to talk about the Breakthrough Brits programme. So keep an ear out for that. Uh, in the meantime, all news, analysis, industry insight can be found, obviously, at gamesindustry.biz. Mm-hmm.